If you don't know me, my name is Will, and I want to welcome you to Crossroads this morning, especially if you're here for the first time or if you're visiting uh, the church this summer, really welcome. Um, I'd love to meet you afterwards if you want to come up and say hi. That'd be great. I know a lot of times at a church this size, it feels like everyone already knows each other. And how can you get plugged in or how can you make friends here? And again, I'm extending my hand out to you and saying, I'd like to be your friend. So come on up and say hi afterward. Um, Everyone having a good summer so far? Greg reminded me that... uh, the month of June will be over soon. The hum- summer's almost halfway done already, so some encouragement there, right? For us fall lovers, fall, yeah? Yeah, all right. But, you know, during the summer, we really like to encourage people uh, to press into what it means to rest with their families and to, to try to grab onto a little bit of Sabbath. We know that the school year and everything can be super busy, and summer affords that sometimes. And it looks different for us as a teaching staff, too. Uh, in the summer, we want people to feel free to make the most of their cottages or their vacation time. And we don't want them to miss out on big chunks of what we're teaching here on Sunday mornings. And so we're pausing the Luke series that we've been in for a while. And we're teaching through the book of Hebrews. Well, just a chapter of Hebrews, really. Um, if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, uh, you should be. Because it's an amazing book in the Bible. It's God's word for us. And um, I encourage you to read it this summer at some point if you feel inclined. Especially if you've been in the Old Testament for a while. Because the book of Hebrews does an excellent job explaining how Jesus really came to fulfill the covenant that's laid out in the Old Testament. So this book is written to people that knew that covenant, to Jewish people who believed that Jesus really was the long-awaited Messiah. They're Jews that were spread out all over Europe. They knew God and the stories of their forefathers. They believe that Jesus did indeed come to fulfill the promises that were made to them. The one who would bring the redemption of Israel, the the one who would bring the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. And this book really helps us make sense of some of the things that we all deal with at one point or the, another. How do we practically walk out what we know to be true in our heads? The recipients of this letter, they had a paradigm that their forefathers followed, and they left it. They left the temple. They left the sacrificial system, believing that the sacrifice of Christ was once for all. They left the sometimes corrupt institution of the priesthood, and in doing so, they ostracized themselves from their families. These are men and women who, despite intense persecution from their own heritage, chose to say that Jesus is the Christ— And this book was written to strengthen, to encourage that church, to encourage them to live in a way that lined up with what their words were saying, what their minds believed, to remind them to walk out this faith. All throughout the 13 chapters of this book, we find exhortations from the author to live as if Christ really is better than an angel, better than any high priest, and better than any old covenant institution. Just listen in... uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in this heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. 
4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Chapter 6, verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest for us forever. Chapter 10, 19, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for who he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. And thirteen fifteen says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Let me just say this morning, in light of these verses, we, you and I, as a, as a family, we need to continually remind ourselves and each other who we are, what we're doing here. We need to continually to remind each other to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've walked with the Lord, how many scriptures you have memorized. There are so many other gods vying for our attention. So many gods demanding our desires, our loves, our old ways of life have a way of creeping back up on us. The paths we used to walk start calling our name as a, as a siren on the shores that we get lured into only to find out after it's too late that they leave us in these devastating places. It's why we have church. It's why we do band of brothers and women's Bible studies and house churches and new city kids. It's all here to say that, that we're in this together and we need each other. And if you find yourself struggling in your faith this morning, feeling like you're, again, all alone, wondering if surrendering, surrendering your life to Christ was ever a good idea, you need to get other people around you. You need to meet the, the humans that are sitting next to you right now. People who can care about you, who can walk with you. Again, if you need help getting pointed in that direction, come talk to me after the service. Go find Brad. Go find Brandon. Go to the Connection Center. It's there for a reason, to help you guys. We've been looking specifically in Hebrews at chapter 11 this summer, which is commonly referred to as the Hall of Fame of Faith or the Heroes of Faith. It's a chapter that's just chock full of stories of people who really trusted God for some major things, some incredible things. So far, we've touched on Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and there are a lot more coming. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the father of our faith, the great Abraham. And so, would you please uh, stand to your feet, turn to Hebrews 11. We're going to read the Word of God together, verses uh, 8 through 19. Starting verse 8. 
By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and whose builder is God. And even by faith, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died, and they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they are strangers and foreigners on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been looking, or if they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have the opportunity to return. Instead, they are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. This is God's word. You can have a seat. I'll get a drink. Uh, I do feel like I've really lucked out when it comes to which one of us pastors are going to preach which sermon. Um, We got a good chunk of text to look at here, and I didn't find myself even once envying uh, what Brandon had to preach last week where Noah, by faith, condemned the earth, right? Uh, We have a great example of faith in Abraham. Would you agree with me? Before we get too far into that, though, I want to bring something to light, a little reminder to help put everyone on the same playing field, to help put everyone at ease. When we refer to these men and women as the hall of fame, we need to be careful about putting them up on a pedestal. We need to check our hearts and make sure we're not idolizing these humans, which can easily happen. God is very purposeful in using these men and women's stories, not because they're so great, because the opposite, because they're not so great. That's the point. Most of the people named in this chapter had major sin areas in their lives. Things that you and I would normally think disqualify people from walking with the Lord. Disqualify them maybe for sure for getting their names written in the Bible. You know, we got Enoch. There's, so there's one guy who walked faithfully with the Lord. So much so that God even just said, I really like you and I'm going to take you to be with me. But what do we know about the others? What do you know about David? Adulterer, murderer. What do you know about Rahab? It almost doesn't even say your name without saying the prostitute Rahab. Moses disobeyed God even though he spoke to him as a man speaks to another face to face. Moses saw his form and disobeyed. Gideon hid from the Lord's enemy, the Midianites, and he tested God over and over by putting the fleece out. Abraham even gave his wife to foreign kings because he feared for his life. This is not the hall of fame of spiritually disciplined people. These are not the heroes of righteous living who have all the answers memorized. 
That's encouragement for me at least. These are men and women who lived with great faith. Something that in our day and age usually takes a back seat behind great theology. For us, faith oftentimes means having the right answers. You know, there's tons of people in this room who stood before scary looking men and made a profession of faith. You gave the right answers to the questions that they asked. For these men and women mentioned, faith meant walking. It meant trusting. It meant moving where God was leading. And because of this faith, these men and women were considered righteous. Not because of what they did, not because of their good acts, but because of their faith, they're considered righteous. And verse 16 even says, because of this, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Without going too far into it, I mean, can you say that of yourself? That, I don't know, I find myself asking, God, are you ashamed to be called my God? Help me. In Greek, this word faith is pistis. And it means to believe to the extent of complete trust and complete reliance. And I want you to think about that definition the next time you're reading through the Gospels and a man or a woman comes to Jesus and Jesus says to them, by your faith, you're healed. By your complete trust, you're healed. By your absolute dependence and reliance upon me, you're healed. What we see in our text is that Abraham had this type of faith in God. Abraham lived with complete trust and reliance. And the question that we should be asking ourselves this morning is, do we have this type of faith? Do I have this type of confidence in God? Is God big and faithful to keep the promises that he's made? Or is God small? Abraham lived the way he did because he believed in a big God. And our verses this morning uh, give us Four really by-faith stories of Abraham. Four examples of the way that he trusted God, his reliance upon God, his dependence upon God. Each one of these examples has been recorded in the Old Testament and brought up again in the book of Hebrews in order to stir our faith, to stir our reliance and trust in God. In so many ways, they span the gap of time. They reach forward, jumping out of his context right into our context. I'm sure that you'll find yourself in one of these examples this morning. We're going to look at the four examples in the following way. Number one, Abraham had faith in the unknown. It's verse 8. Verse 9, Abraham had faith in the uncomfortable. Verse 11, he and Sarah had faith in the impossible. And in verse 17, Abraham had faith in the irrational. Unknown, uncomfortable, impossible, irrational. That kind of sums up sometimes what the Christian life looks like, doesn't it? It's those types of moments are the ones in life that you really need faith. You don't necessarily need amazing faith when things are perfectly laid out for you. You don't need faith when things are easy and make sense. No, you need faith when you have no idea what's going to happen. Many of us are there today. There might be a change in your job. There might be a divorce or a separation. You're done with your degree and the jobs aren't lining up the way you thought they would. Maybe you face humiliation or persecution. What do you do in these situations? What do you do? The author of Hebrews says, remember our father Abraham. Let's start with the unknown. Abraham had faith in the unknown. Verse 8. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. This story is found in Genesis chapter 12, which is at the other end of your Bible, way in the front. And it might be helpful to turn there quick as I give a brief summary of the story. You're going to want to keep like a pinky in Hebrews too. Okay, so after Noah built the boat, after the flood and humans started repopulating the earth, after the whole Tower of Babel incident where men tried to build this tower up to God, and the scripture kind of laughs at it and said God actually had to come down to them. He gave them different languages. He scattered them all over the earth. And uh, as they spread out in the Middle East, this is where our story kind of reminds us of the lineage of Adam and Eve. In chapter 11 of Genesis, God says, Well, before this, God says to the first man and the first woman that through their offspring would arise one who would come and crush the enemy. And since that promise, we the readers have been kept up to speed by these genealogies, these toledotes. And whenever a person of prominence arises, someone who's a major player in the drama that's unfolding, the author zooms in a little bit so we can get detail on his life. And that's what we have in the case of Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts with, The Lord said to Abram, God later changed his name to Abraham, Go! We have no idea what Abram's relationship is like with the Lord up until this point. All we know is that he was traveling with his father. His father died. He's 75 years old. And all of a sudden, God just appears to him and says, Go! Maybe similarly to how he appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And I love to picture how that conversation went. I love to just close my eyes and picture Abram with fear and trembling before God, listening with reverence, hearing his words. I love to picture that. What I don't love to picture so much is then Abram having to go tell his wife what God said. Sarah, I know we got a life here. I know we have a family here. I know we have this house here. But I talked to God earlier, and he said to leave it all behind, to go. What I love about the scripture, too, is that how it's so nonchalantly in verse 4 just says, so Abraham went, as the Lord told him. Where's the struggle to make a decision? Where's the delay? Where's the doubt and the questioning? We don't see any of this with Abram. God calls, and he goes. And one of the reasons that Abram is so highly revered and respected is because his faith is immediately expressed by his obedience to God's call. This is meant to be a lesson for us. I wonder how many people in the room today have heard the call from God to go. Would you raise your hand? Anyone? Yeah, a lot of us. Maybe to the mission field. Maybe to take a new job. Maybe to go to your neighbor's house, knock on the door, and say, Hi, I'm Will. Nice to meet you. God has a call for each one of us. He has a go in mind for everyone in this room this morning, all of his children. And we have a role to play, too. Abraham could have stayed. He could have said no. But the text in Hebrews 11 gives us two great words. He obeyed and he went. If you got a pen or a highlighter, you like marking up your Bible, this would be a great couple words to underline, to circle, whatever you do. He obeyed and went. He showed God his trust and his love for him, and he obeyed. Think about that call then that God has placed on your life. 
And maybe the first thing that comes to mind are all the obstacles, all the setbacks that might arise if you were to take the first step. Faith is taking that step anyway. Not having a perfect plan, not having a five method, uh, methods to secure an outcome. Abraham obeyed and went, even though each next step was unknown, was unseen. Let him be an example to us. To not let those unknown, unseen things keep us from completely trusting God, relying on him, obeying, and going. Abraham had faith through the uncomfortable. Verse 9 says, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And when I read this, I can't help but think of the time that I spent in Jordan this past November. I sat in this room uh, with a family of five, and I heard their story. They're from Iraq. They lived in a city called Mosul where, there had, where they had jobs and went to school and had family members and had best friends. They had lives there. It just so happened uh, that Mosul was also a place that the ISIS militants are really interested in. They wanted control over that city. And before long, there came a knock on the door. And with that knock came a threat. These militants knew that this family were Christians. And they gave this family an ultimatum. They said, there's really only two choices. You deny Christ or you die. Have you ever sat face to face in a room with someone who's been put up against making that choice? It shakes you. They left. They left everything that very night. And there were long There were tears and long pauses as they described their flight from Iraq to Jordan. The mother told us about this house that she loved so much. It was an open-air villa in the hills with tons of room to entertain. And this is being juxtaposed by this room that we can't even all fit in with the room right next door with five mattresses an inch thick laying right next to each other. They left the life they had created because they trusted a big God. There's no way to describe the joy and the simultaneous pain in their faces as they told us about how hard it was to leave things behind. Their new normal was uncomfortable. They were strangers in a new land holding only to the hope that Jesus really is who he says he is. I remember thinking about this text when we were there, thinking about Abraham, and it made so much sense to me that these reminders would be in our Bibles because there really are people who are having to live uncomfortable lives for the sake of Christ. Do you know that? There are people in this room who are doing that, who are taking orphaned children into their homes. It's not easy. Who are walking with broke and hurt people who are moving into the city or across the ocean to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to the least of these. Abraham was called to live in tents, to not have a home, to not have a place to call his own, to be a stranger, to give up his comfort for the sake of God's plan and God's kingdom. Reminded of the words of Jesus, he says in Luke 6, 24, 
Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who have plenty, for you've already received your comfort. Do you trust God enough? Can you take him at his word to step into the uncomfortable? Or is, it through, or is the thought of discomfort keeping you from the plans that God has for you? Keeping you from his dreams, his desires. Are your dreams and desires getting in the way of that? Are you willing to be a stranger in this world? Are you willing to be different, to not value the things that other people value, to not want the things that your neighbors have? Do you have eyes set on heavenly realities and eternal purposes? Are you looking for a better country? Are you citizens of a different place? Strangers in this world. Abraham was. There's a good example of it in chapter 13 of Genesis when Lot, his nephew, comes to him and says, uh, Abraham, we're just growing too much. Our peoples are becoming too large and the, the land can't sustain both you and I. And Abraham tries to convince him to stay because he knows the promise is with him. But after uh, Lot kind of begs, Abraham says, okay, okay, go. Choose wherever you want to go. You want to go this way? I'll go that way. You want to go this way? I'll go that way. You can pick wherever you want. He wasn't looking to be great. Abraham wasn't looking to build a kingdom. He wasn't looking to get the best resources of the land to build an empire for himself. He relied on God. He trusted. He embraced the tents. He embraced the strange lands, the uncomfortable, because he trusted in God. And I just want to take a second to pause. I'm going to pray, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit with me to really maybe put his finger on something that you're holding on to. Some way of comfort, something, something that you feel such comfort in that's getting in the way of what God has for you. Would you pray with me? It's a, it's a brave prayer. God, thank you that we can trust you, and thank you that you have given us the best um, call in life to become like you. And uh, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, really convict and really uh, bring to mind things that are getting in the way of that. Bring to mind the comfort that we love. It keeps us from engaging with uh, the people that you love. The author of Hebrews says, remember Abraham. Our third example, faith through the impossible. Verse 11, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she, was considered, she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Up to this point in Abraham's life, he's trusted and followed God, even though the destination was unknown and the way would prove to be hard. God was with him. God had provided for him. And for 25 years, Abraham now has trusted God's call and his promises. And for 25 years, one of the main promises that God made to Abraham and his wife had not come to pass. There's a lesson in patience there for me. I mean, God promised Abraham a family, a child, someone to carry his name and ultimately to fulfill the purpose made to Adam and Eve. Really, this is everything. 
This is the call that Abraham said yes to. His walking into the unknown, his acceptance of the uncomfortable was all sweetened by the promise that God made to him concerning his offspring. Was it immediate? No. How long before he began to question the faithfulness of God? How long would you have waited? Abraham waited 25 years. And not only that, but, God prom- but what God promised to Abraham was impossible. Abraham was 100 years old. Me and my father-in-law were joking about it this week. The text says he was as good as dead. It's got to make some people feel good, right? His wife was past childbearing years. There's no way that this is happening. We could see it in Abraham's mind. Doubt sets in. Abraham and Sarah began to take matters into their own hands. He sleeps with Sarah's servant, and she becomes pregnant and bore him a son. Sound familiar? I hope that your life situation doesn't perfectly line up with all of that, but we do the same thing. We're, we're guilty of doing that. Most of the times, we start taking control over the thing after a day or a week or a month. Forgetting that Psalm 25 reads that no one who waits on the Lord will ever be put to shame. Messengers from God come and they told Abraham that the son born of Hagar is not the fulfillment of the promise and that a son would be born of his wife Sarah. And he and Sarah laughed. It says that Sarah laughed out loud and these messengers even heard it. And she said, this is too wonderful. It's too wonderful a thing to even think about. To which these messengers respond, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I want to put that same question before you this morning. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you have faith this morning for things that seem impossible? Because guess what? Our entire belief system, our hope, our salvation, the new life that we have because of Christ is all built upon God doing what is impossible for men to do. Faith requires that you believe in a God who does impossible things, a God who heals, a God who miraculously provides, a God who empowers and speaks to his children, a God who changes hearts, who raises the dead, who allows virgins to conceive, who brings light and revelation into the darkest places, allowing the worst of men to become the holiest of saints. He's done the impossible for you already. Do you know that? He's done the impossible for me. Romans 5 says that while you and I were powerless to do anything, Christ died for the ungodly. 2 Corinthians 5 says that Christ became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. God is Lord over even the impossible, and no word from the Lord will ever fail. Is he calling you this morning to trust him for something that seems impossible? Remember verse 11. Call to mind the stories you know about God and see how many of these stories have to do with God doing something impossible. The Bible's littered with them. He's always making a way where there is no way. Abraham has faith in the unknown, the uncomfortable, the impossible. Now we'll look at the irrational. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through this son, through Isaac, that your offspring will be reckoned. 
Abraham reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead. So in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Let's think about this together. Continuing in the story, Sarah then uh, gives birth to a son and names him Laughter, names him Isaac. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Isaac is growing and maturing. This is the son of the promise. I'm sure every time Abraham looked at this son, he said, thank you, God. Thank you. You are faithful and your promises are trustworthy. This is proof that God is faithful to his word, right? But our text says that God wanted to test the faith of Abraham. This story is found in Genesis 22. Verse 1 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, Hanani, here I am. Abraham replied. And God said, take your son. Yeah, that son, your only son. The son whom you love. Take Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Abraham's got to be beside himself. What? That boy? There must be a mistake. This is the promised son. This is what I've left everything for. God, this doesn't make any sense. Have you ever said, God, this doesn't make any sense? I have. And I know that the Jewish Christians who received this letter, they're probably saying the same thing as their property is stolen, as they're put in jail, as they're beaten. God, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. Humans love the rational. We love predictable outcomes. We want our Christianity to be like a math problem where we do all the right steps of the equation and the gates of heaven open up. We get the right answer. God loves the irrational. He loves to lead his people to the shore of the Red Sea with armies coming towards them and no way out. He loves to whittle armies down to minuscule numbers and to watch them march into battle with confidence. He loves to prove to us over and over and over until it's ingrained in our very being that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His plans are not our plans. And the end that we see coming is not the end that he sees coming. Abraham goes. The next verse, early in the morning, Abraham rises up. No hesitation. This takes faith. Abraham doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't know that God is going to provide a ram for him later. All he knows is what God has told him to do. Go. It takes complete trust, complete reliance on someone bigger, someone stronger, someone more capable than ourselves. God asks us to do the irrational in order to deepen our understanding of who he is and how he longs to be capable for you how he longs to provide for you, how he longs to make a way for you. Is God calling you something, calling you to something that doesn't make any sense outside of him being real? Is he calling you to something that your friends kind of scoff at and they don't understand? What an amazing place to be. What a safe place to be, to hear his call, to be one short step behind the shepherd. To be sure, there is a call for every one of us. Everyone in this room has a call placed on their life by God. He has a destiny for you, plan for you. How that call is walked out in the practical might look different for every one of us, but the call is the same for every person. Jesus says, if anyone, 
If anyone wants to be a disciple of mine, a follower of mine, if anyone would believe in me, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me, walk behind me. Whoever wants to save their life, lose it, give it away, sacrifice it. Whoever wants to, whoever loses it will save it. I wonder what we're doing with our lives right now. Are we sacrificing them? Because this is the call, Christian. Come. Come and die. All these heroes of faith from chapter 11 understood this. They all have something in common. All the men and the women that we look up to in our heritage, who have gone before us and made huge strides in the advancement of the kingdom of God, they trusted in a big God who's sovereign over the unknown, over the uncomfortable, over the impossible and the irrational. Their lives weren't so valuable to them that they had to white-knuckle control every step and outcome. I want that to be said about me. I want that to be us. I want to be a church where we trust God for big things and live in a way that shows that we actually do. To be a church that doesn't shy away from hard places or hard things. A church full of people who are willing to conform no longer to the world's pattern, but rather lay their lives down as a sacrifice to God. To live in a way that glorifies not what we can do, not what we know, not the answers that we have, not the way that we dress, not how, what school we went to or what seminary we're studying at or however many uh, people we can get in chairs on Sunday mornings. It's glorifying what he can do through people who are willing to say, here am I, God. Would you use me? Would you send me? Would you call me? Let's let that word faith describe our church. Complete trust, reliance, and dependence. If you want that, pray with me. God, you have shown yourself over and over and over again to be the faithful God who keeps his promises. We thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this morning, God, that you, would, that you would change us. That you, like a potter who puts his hands to the clay, would mold us and shape us into be the very thing that your heart desires for us, God. That we would be a church who's able to let go of momentary comforts, to partake in your city, to partake in your heavenly dwelling, God. Let us give over our citizenship of earth and say, we're aliens here, we're strangers here. We belong to a king and a kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for, for being a shepherd and leading us in that.